Hello, hello, hello. This is the Vanilla JavaScript Podcast. I'm Chris Ferdinandi. Thanks so much for joining me. Today, I'm joined by a very special guest, my friend, Ben Myers. And we're going to be talking about accessibility and hopefully a little D&D and a whole bunch of fun stuff. Um, so for Ben, for folks who don't know who you are or what you do, um, could you tell people a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Howdy, howdy, y'all. I am a front-end developer at Microsoft. I work on the Microsoft Learn platform, which is our developer documentation platform. Uh, I'm not writing the documentation there. Instead, I work on building the interface, uh, specifically with a focus on uh, making it accessible for disabled users, um, as well as other factors such as internationalization and web performance. And um, I also help maintain a design system we have going for that project as well. Um, I'm a huge accessibility advocate. Um, if you've seen me around on the web, uh, you may have seen my blog. I, I like to blog about accessibility topics. Um, and I also just brought uh, just brought back a stream that I host called Some Antics, where I bring on guests from around web development and web design on a roughly weekly basis to teach me something about building great user experiences for the web in a hands-on way with a focus on accessibility and or core web technologies. I, I'm really passionate about bringing accessibility to uh, developers who I broadly feel like do care and want to learn more, but oftentimes don't know where to start or how to prioritize um, accessibility. And so uh, that's kind of the content niche I like to fill. Um, and so if you've seen me around, uh, that's likely where. Awesome. And I'm going to make sure we drop links to both uh, Semantics and your blog down in the show notes uh, for folks who want to check those out. You definitely should. Um, you should also check out Ben's 404 page, which I just accidentally found myself on. Um, your Unleash the T-Rexes button brings me immense amounts of joy. You have to keep clicking it. I no, I literally am. I've been I've been clicking it while you've been talking. Okay. Um, <laughs> I am going to provide an audio description for uh folks at home who have not yet discovered my 404 page. There is, I mean, there is a big honk and like 404 heading. And then underneath it, uh, there are two buttons. I forget what the first one is, but the second one says unleash the T-Rexes. Um, and you click it and it sprays a confetti of T-Rex emojis. Uh, the more you click it, the more T-Rexes appear. And eventually the button just says in all caps with like a dozen exclamation marks, unleash. That's um, where I'm at right now. You're um, at the unleash with like a dozen exclamation marks. Yeah, marks. it's um, my screen is just 100% T-Rex at this point. I, um, I am so sorry for the like performance that's going to cause on your CPU. Yeah, it does, well, I, it does work out at some point. It it yes, it did start to lag a little bit, but I got one of them fancy M1 or M2 Max. So we uh we we kept sailing for a little while anyway. Yeah, that can handle um, like a hundred T-Rexes at a time. <laughs> With the, the T-Rex frame rate. Um okay, we're gonna go off the rails really fast because that's I have a tendency to do that. Um so uh Ben, I know a big part of kind of your work is advocating for accessibility on the web. Um uh, this is a topic that a lot of my students feel really passionate about, mm -hmm. um, and I do as well. But I know one of the kind of the shared challenges that a lot of a lot of folks, myself included, kind of struggle with is knowing where to start, knowing kind of what's some of the big or like low hanging fruit things that uh, we should focus on. Are um, so when you're talking about folks with this, are there any like 
common challenges or easy wins that you you kind of start with or, or how does that how does that conversation usually go yeah so oftentimes um the I, I find that oftentimes people already kind of have the answers, weirdly enough. So uh, what you'll find is that when accessibility people start introducing accessibility, it's common to break disability into several kinds of categories. And uh, those could be vision disabilities. So if you're blind or low vision or colorblind or you have like partial vision, for instance, like obscured vision, um, uh, those, those are some examples of like vision disabilities that people might have. Um, there's auditory disabilities. So uh, you're deaf, you're hard of hearing, or you have auditory processing disorders, which are uh, disabilities where you can hear, but parsing meaning out of what you're hearing is difficult. Um, mm -hmm. You've got your like physical and motor disabilities. So uh, for instance, I have some limb abnormalities. I have some short limbs. I have no thumbs. Um, stuff like that. Um, and, and that impacts my ability to manipulate devices, right? Um, and then finally, we talk about like cognitive disabilities. And that is itself a massive, massive spectrum where you're talking anything from like ADHD, for instance, which might Hello? make it difficult to stay focused on a sustained task for like a sustained period of time, right? Especially when that task is complex, right? Um, there are disabilities like dyslexia, which might you know, make it difficult for you to read the contents of a page. And then there's, you know, a whole host of cognitive disabilities that might just generally make it difficult for you to parse like complex instructions, right? To understand the complex mm -hmm. interface. Uh, so oftentimes what I like to do uh, is encourage people to think of disabilities they know, and then just imagine like, hey, if you were, you know, someone with that kind of disability, what needs might you have? How might that impact how you navigate the web? Now, oftentimes people are actually pretty good at figuring that out, right? Like, oh, if I imagine that I have some form of colorblindness, uh, I think there's a more clinically correct name for that now, which is something like uh, color vision deficiency or something like that. But if 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 you struggle to discern different colors, right, then where might that show up? Well, it might show up in form validation where, you know, red, green, colorblind is... Uh, the like most common form of colorblindness. And yet we indicate form status with showing red for invalid fields and green for uh, valid correct fields. And um, so oftentimes I, I like to just encourage you to just almost brainstorm a list of disabilities, you know, and then run through that and be like, how could that impact someone's experience? Or if you don't know, which, you know, if you don't have those disabilities, you oftentimes likely don't know. So uh, I would encourage you to seek out people who have already written about that people have uh, who have written about things for instance like i have vestibular disorders that make me nauseous when i see motion and here's how i experience the web there are several excellent news stories out there that describe that lived experience um so that's where i usually start um from there i like to remind people that uh, no two disabled people experience their disability in the same way. No two people have the exact same access needs and no two people will have the same preferences, right? Um, this is a, a very subjective thing. We can make maybe some generalizations, but ultimately people have individual needs. Uh, and also I like to remind people that you could be multiply disabled, right? Uh, we often talk about this platonic ideal of like, oh, here's a blind person, but we never stop to think about you know, well, 
not everyone is blind in the same way. And then blind people could also be deaf, for instance. Um, so yeah, I'll pause there because I think you have some thoughts. Well, yeah. So you've you've hit on a couple of, I think, really important things. Um, one of them is I I know one of the things a lot of folks do when they kind of first start is think about disability as kind of this monolith, right? Like we got the disabled community, uh, and it is very much not a monolith. Um, I also think kind of the go-to archetype that I have absolutely been guilty of of doing this myself is uh, blind or visually impaired people, right? So it's, let's talk about screen readers. Let's talk about how to navigate with a keyboard. Um, or I think the other like really easy one that a lot of folks go to is um, color contrast stuff, right? So folks who have, um, uh, you know, color deficiency issues or things like that. Um, but the thing that you were just talking about is I think a big part of what makes accessibility so hard is because even within say a group of people, right. Visually impaired folks, or like eight, you know, we talked about cognitive issues, right? Like ADHD. So Alex Trost from front end horse and I had a really great conversation a while back about our ADHD. Um, and, uh, he has a different subtype of ADHD than I do. So the way he experiences ADHD is dramatically different from mine. He doesn't have the hyperactivity that I have, which is its its own kind of beast. And so when we were talking about things that worked for us, like the different tactics that helped us get things done were wildly different. Um, and so um, uh, I think all of this is to say, um, I think programmers really like to do you know, to achieve X, do Y kind of solutions, right? And accessibility doesn't really work that way. Like there's no, like you just wave a wand and your site is accessible kind of thing because there's so many different moving parts and kind of uh, types of disabilities that, you know, could impact the way things work. So um, one of the things I've encountered when talking to folks about this is there's a, there's a tendency to uh, get frustrated and feel like, well, I'm never going to be able to make yeah. this accessible to all the different people. So why should I even bother? So like, I, do you have any, any kind of advice or kind of a, approaches for managing that? It's um, I've been guilty of it myself. Like I've had lots of conversations with folks like Scott O'Hara um, before around how it feels overwhelming. Like I just, sometimes I don't know where to start, you know? Yeah. It, I, I can definitely relate to that understanding, right? Like, yes, it it is true on a 100% like factual, like pragmatic level. You will never be 100% accessible to all the people, right? Um, but I think that in general, progress over perfection is a healthy mindset to take. Um, and, you know, a product being accessible to 95% of people is better than a product that's accessible to only 90% of people, right? Like we can always improve scope and, and we are always improving scope. We're constantly learning people in the accessibility space, like accessibility experts who have been experts for a long time are constantly learning. Um, but uh, I would recommend finding um, you had asked earlier about some low hanging fruit. I would, I would recommend starting with those. So um, there is an organization called WebAIM, uh, which is short for Web Accessibility in Mind, um, and they do a ton of just excellent uh, surveys and research into the state of accessibility. And one of their projects that they run is called WebAIM Million. They actually just like last week 
published their 2023 results. Um, what they did was they scan the 1 million most popular homepages across the web. And, and they scan those for automatically detectable accessibility issues. Now, absolutely, we should note, not all accessibility bugs are automatically detectable. There's only a certain subset of, of them that are. And also, homepages are a very limited context. This says nothing about, you know, other pages or what things look like in a logged in authenticated state or when you visit the internal dashboards or whatever, right? But um, what they found when they, and, and they've run this this project, this scan for several years now. And what they found is that consistently six bugs, I think it is, consistently show up um, year after year. Uh, something like 30% uh, of automatically traceable accessibility bugs are color contrast bugs. They're issues where the foreground does not stand out sufficiently from the background. And that's common on so many sites. I would have to pull up Web a Million to tell you how, like, how many pages had color contrast issues, but is significant, right? It is mm -hmm. shocking. And it's shocking in part because it's imminently fixable, right? Like we have color contrast uh, calculators. We have checkers, right? You can run automated scans like this using ActsDev tools, for instance, on your own site. And it'll tell you which color contrast combos just don't work. And mm -hmm. The solution is pick a different color. Like that is in the grand scheme of things, not that difficult, you know? Um, you might have to run it past designers and stuff like that. But like, you know, the solution is presented on a platter for the most part. Um, and all of these top six bugs are like that. Um, they've also surfaced that uh, there's way too many links and buttons that have no text contents. So screen reader users aren't informed of what they are. Um, it's a lot harder for voice control users to use those. Um, additionally, uh, links that do have text contents in them uh, often have very ambiguous names like click here, which if you're familiar with some of the more advanced uh, navigation modes of a screen reader, uh, you might be aware that you can navigate through a page going from link to link, skipping any surrounding context. And so your click here link is absolutely context-free uh, for many users. So um, this itself is another really low hanging fruit. There's one that's um, the HTML element is missing the Lang attribute. And so screen readers don't know like which pronunciation rules to load the page in. Um, that is one attribute that is missing on a ton of web pages, right? Um, and this stuff is easy enough to fix, right? This is not the complicated, let's sit down and have some serious brainstorming sessions over how to fix this experience. It's like, we could pick a different color. We could add this attribute. We could add some text here. Um, and by clearing that away, you're going to remove some of the largest barriers uh, that people have to like, uh, experiencing the web from your site. You're like, you're already going to be ahead of the pack in many ways. Mm -hmm. um, going on from there, like once you've cleared those things, what I would recommend doing is running some automated accessibility scans of your own against your site. Um, I, men I mentioned Axe Dev Tools. That tends to be my uh, scan of choice. Um, again, automated testing tools won't catch everything, but importantly, they will catch even more of the low-hanging fruit that you've likely missed. Um, and usually what they do is they surface results that are like, hey, 
here's this guideline that this bug violates. Here's more information. When I was learning, when I was starting out with accessibility, I used to just scan a bunch of sites, including sites I was working on, sites I wasn't working on, and I would see what bugs came up. And I would take that as a cue to learn more, right? Why is this a bug? Who does this impact? What is the experience that this is causing? And what is the experience someone would uh, expect in this case? I love using that as a springboard to just learn more about how people are experiencing the web, but in a very piece by piece way where you don't have to boil the ocean, as it were, you can just fix one bug at a time. That sounds great. Is there um is there a reason you favor uh or I guess let me phrase this differently? Um, how does say the Act DevTools extension differ from Lighthouse, which I think has accessibility baked in? Is it does it go into so, like kind of more areas, or is it just like a different people a like different question. tools kind of thing? So Lighthouse actually uses Acts under the hood, but oh um, okay, yeah. So uh, Google has not gone and built like their own accessibility checker. They're using basically a subset of Acts. Um, oh, and remember that so. I think Lighthouse is a great approachable tool, but the end result that uh, Google has in mind with um, you using Lighthouse is that you're going to make your your site more search friendly, right? They they want your site mm -hmm. to be a better experience for um, their crawl bots to understand your site, and which <laughs> and, and and they want it to be a no. Like, they, I mean, uh, and and they want. Um, when a, a user clicks on your link from Google search results, they want it to be a, like Google wants it to be a good experience because otherwise that reflects poorly on Google. So that is like their motivation. And so, um, you know, an inaccessible site is part of that, uh, but they're only showing like a subset of accessibility practices. And um, I find that acts tends to out of the box surface a little more. That's kind of changed recently because they've I, like, Axe has made it um, so that you have to like check a box that says like show best practices so you can get like the recommendations that aren't strict failures uh, uh -huh. or aren't about strict failures. Um, I find that Axe surfaces more. Additionally, a lot of the, um, I, I believe in a very systemic approach to accessibility, right? You have to incorporate checks at every part of the process. And if you're scanning against your live site, like it's already a little too late, uh, you know, it's, it's oftentimes where you have to start, but uh, teams that want to have a uh, want to have process maturity around accessibility are probably mm -hmm. going to be doing things like running automated scans in their CI/CD pipelines, and those scans are all powered by Axe as well. Um, cool. I like just having like one kind of ecosystem. I think everyone kind of lands on their different tools, but Axe I think is a very strong contender. Nice. Uh, just for anybody who uh, doesn't know what a CI/CD pipeline is, it's a continuous integration and continuous deployment. So like an automated push to some sort of Git repository and then have a bunch of things kind of automatically fire off before your site is deployed uh, and flag you if anything fails. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, uh, cool. Yeah. Um, changing gears just a little bit, not just a little bit, just a little bit. Um, I. Uh, I have on occasion gotten emails from folks who are interested in getting into uh, accessibility uh, advocacy um, or consulting just professionally. Um, so 
how did you how did you kind of end up down this path? And do you have any tips or tricks for folks who kind of would like to follow down that same career path? Yeah. So I okay. Um, my my job titles have always been more generic, like front end developer titles, right? I have never mm-hmm. held the job title accessibility advocate, right? Um, and that I think is a a thing to note as indicative of perhaps the larger industry. So. How I got started in accessibility, first of all, I've been disabled all my life. I've always had to be a disabled, like a champion for uh, accessibility and, you know, disability rights, because like that is a personal necessity for me and my like agency in the world. Right. Um, and so I, I think that that is a sentiment that will feel very familiar for many disabled people. Um, but uh, I got into web dev actually kind of by happenstance. Like I knew I was like good with computers that I wanted to do something kind of programming, but I didn't know like what field of programming. Um, I did an internship at a bank and I happened to be assigned to a front end team and I just really loved it. I loved being able to uh, directly see the interface that I was creating and how um, how it would feel to use it. I, I think that that is one of the beautiful gifts of front end development is that you can actually see the and, and use the interface that you're building. Um, and so I uh, interned with a team. I joined that team full time after I graduated. And on that team, like, well, all the developers there were front end developers or back end developers. Um, everyone kind of fell into some champion roles, more or less. Um, so, you know, we would have someone who was like the testing champion, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and stuff like that. Uh, and there was a teammate that was at that point kind of the point of contact for accessibility, but he wanted to be doing more backend stuff and more security focused stuff. Like accessibility just wasn't where his passions were lying anymore. And I happened to have just joined the team and I had already kind of shown an interest in that. Um, and he was like, Ben, do you want to be the champion? Uh, I will say as a general note of advice for people in the world, maybe don't point to the obviously disabled person on your team and go, do you want to be responsible for accessibility? Um, That is not always a cool move. However, in this case, I was ecstatic about it. I was thrilled. I was jazzed. Um, And I consumed as much as I possibly could have on, on uh, that. So I was reading, you know, web aim. I was reading blog posts from, you know, people I've since been able to network with. We've, uh, mentioned Scott O'Hara, for instance. Uh, you know, I, I started just reading everything I could on this matter um, and testing my site. Uh, but accessibility champion, like it was, this this was not again like a formal role. Like it was maybe a bullet point under my larger front end development role. And um, again, I think that that's going to ring true for a lot of people who work in accessibility is that they are you know largely front end developers by role. And accessibility is a bullet point of that role. But um, a lot of people, you know, people don't know what they don't know, right? They don't know the extent of their ignorance. And so they don't know necessarily how to consider accessibility. And so oftentimes being the accessibility champion is about being like, well, what about the screen reader experience, right? Mm -hmm. Where does the focus go? Have we considered how this is going to look for someone who relies on a magnifier, right? It's you do kind of have to inject those questions into the conversation because unless you're on a team that already has extreme accessibility maturity, like 
those questions aren't going to come up uh, for many people. So you have to you have to take charge there and be the one to inject those. And eventually it'll get to the point where uh, hopefully, hopefully uh, people like your product owner and your designers will, for instance, be like, well, you know, I hadn't considered this, but now because this has been a topic in conversations past, I'm going to go like ask this accessibility point of contact what they think about it. Um, and so, yeah, there is kind of this like self-determination, self-role creation that I think is is often necessary. Um, from there, uh, I started... Uh, I, I gained kind of a reputation actually at my company in large for being someone that you could just like reach out to over Slack and ask accessibility questions. Um, and from there, I started to get involved in like greater content creation because I found that I was, you know, answering some of the same questions over and over again. So I started blogging what I was learning. Um, oh, our new hire onboarding process uses a video course that recommends clickable divs. Well, I now have the benefit of hindsight and know that clickable divs are a devastating pattern. This is where uh, instead of using a button element, you like use a div element and attach a click handler. Uh, it's not keyboard navigable. It's not screen reader usable out of the box. Uh, you should just use a button. 99 times out of 100, you should be using a button, right? Um, and so I was like answering questions. I was providing guidance so often that I just ended up like codifying it as content creation. Um, and it turned out to be decently successful. Um, I became a bit, well, like well known, uh, at least on like tech Twitter, web dev Twitter, accessibility Twitter um, for these things. Eventually, I started the stream. The stream allowed me to also network with uh, other accessibility professionals. Um, and eventually, when I decided I wanted to leave my role, uh, having a network of accessibility professionals and having this backlog to prove that I know what I'm talking about was hugely instrumental in me landing my current job, right? And again, my job is as a front-end developer. Uh, I was hired in with the understanding and, and my team understands this too, that like accessibility is specifically part of my purview, right? Like I was, I'm a front-end developer with a focus on the site's accessibility, but um, you know, that like, it helped that I had backlog and active community involvement of me kind of showing that I know what I'm talking about and showing that I'm passionate about it, right? Um, and I think that while there are some accessibility roles out there, uh, I think that for many people looking to get into accessibility, uh, you may have to make it a bit of a Trojan horse thing where you're a front-end developer who focuses on accessibility and you prove your passion and understanding of accessibility in many ways by greater community engagement and involvement and content creation. Yeah, that um that all tracks. Um the the blogging piece too. Like I at every good thing that's happened in my career has been an offshoot of me writing about stuff as I was learning it uh publicly. Um yes. oh, the, yes. literally and one of the best things I've ever done for my career. And and absolutely, I believe like you should you should document learning in public. Like I think there's a sense of like, oh, I have to be the expert before I can blog it. But you know, it is absolutely worthwhile for you to just share, hey, here's the thing I learned. Here's where I learned it from. Here's how I changed things. Like that process is hugely helpful. And honestly, oftentimes even those resources are more helpful than the quote unquote expert pieces because yeah, you're 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 connected to the day-to-day -day work. Um, and you're approaching things as a 
fellow beginner would, you know? So, uh, yeah, don't feel like you have to become the accessibility expert to start doing accessibility content creation. Like just share what you're learning and how you're learning it and how that's changing what you're doing. That is absolutely like more than good enough. What, um, uh, not what, that's not the right question here. Uh, so as you've been going, I, I've been in situations before where I've kind of been the informal accessibility advocate in a group mm -hmm. of folks where there really wasn't anybody tasked with that job. Um, I've also been in places where there was someone tasked with that job. And uh, in both situations, uh, we kind of, we, we'd run into situations, like sometimes I'd work in tandem with that person, but I've, I've been in places, I think what I'm trying to get at, where um, the company either pushes back hard on that stuff or doesn't care. So, you know, you'll hear things like, well, we don't have disabled users or yeah, that's important, but we don't have the engineering time to focus on it right now. So we'll, we'll push out a minimum viable product and we'll get to that yeah. later. Or um, like, I think the most egregious one I've ever run into was like, I was doing, <clears throat> doing some work for a company that had like a red link on black background color palette. And I was like, Hey, that's not like that. You won't be able to see that text if you have certain types of, you know, visual impairments and they were like, no, 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 our CEO wants it. So you just have to do it. Like, and, you know, like, so how do you, have you ever run into, I'm sure you've run into that before. How have you dealt with that? Have you ever figured out a way to successfully persuade people to do the right thing anyways? Because I, I am very bad at that. Like, I'm really good at rallying people behind a thing they already care about. Um, like my... Like I, and I'm not good at convincing people when they don't. Um, I am not I, a particularly persuasive person. I I think I align a little more closely with you on that. Uh, I, okay. I think I, like it's it's far easier to galvanize people who already care. But you know that is a strong suit, right? Um, uh, in a, in a way because uh, I think of almost like the tech adoption cycle, right? Uh, where if you're not familiar, like you know when new technology is introduced, it's not um you know, people don't just immediately flock to it. There's always like a set of like early adopters who are incredibly passionate and um, you you can usually assemble a small cohort of those like passionate early adopters who see the value in what it is you're, you're selling, right? Um, and then as that group grows, they can leverage their connections, they can leverage their influence and uh, start to communicate the value of this to other people, right? So- um, if you're in a position where you're fighting an uphill battle, sometimes it's okay to just leave, right? Like some companies just are not interested in investing, uh, like in, in investing in accessibility. And, um, there's a, a, an excellent tweet thread from accessibility advocate, Marcy Sutton, where she describes like in her experience on accessibility work, um, burnout is the result of not having the agency to make the change you're trying to make, um, in the most recent AxCon uh, accessibility conference, um, Shell Little also put together just an amazing talk about burnout in accessibility because oftentimes, um, you know, the care and advocacy type roles tend to be the roles that burn out fastest because it's absolutely like a role that you can get emotionally invested in and, you know, like also have the least agency in. So, Generally, burnout is an important thing to keep in mind. Some places may not be uh, receptive at all, in which case leaving is an option. But that said, 
if you want to push for change, I, I don't think you're going to be able to boil the ocean, right? I think that it is important to kind of follow that tech adoption cycle of like, figure out who your early adopters are. Who are the other people that care, right? Um, and I find that generally, uh, when I've spoken to the vast majority of developers, like who work on interfaces, a lot of them would be seriously bummed if they found out that someone couldn't use a thing they built. Um, mm. Like, like that feels crummy, right? And maybe they don't know where to get started on accessibility. They don't know how to prioritize it, or they feel like they can't uh, prioritize it against other work. But they would feel crummy knowing that like someone can't use it, right? And that is that that is the bit of heart that you need, right? Is um, because that person is oftentimes like their parents, their grandmother, their, you know, uh, a friend that they have, you know, their best friend growing up, um, that person, right? Um, and oftentimes you can actively just show people, hey, if I, you know, turn on a screen reader and go through our page, look at how clunky this is, right? You, yeah, like, by doing this one practice of putting a link tag around everything, right? Look how you know verbose this link is. This is how people really experience the web. Like you can show people, like you you find the people who who you think will be uh, invested in their product being at least some degree of usable. You can show them the ways in which currently the product is failing users, and then you can show people the concrete steps that you can take. Um, to resolve that, right? Um, and you yeah. build up momentum, right? Tech adoption is always about momentum. You find the early people who care. Um, you show them why they, why they should care. Uh, you 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 get them on board. You build up some momentum with like, here, let's fix a few quick things here and there. Look how doable that was, right? Like that wasn't, we didn't have to overhaul everything. We made a few key fixes and suddenly this is better, right? Mm -hmm. You build up that momentum. Um, of just fixing a few key blockers, maybe even on a few key pages. Like you could scope this down to, what if we just committed to fixing color contrast on our homepage? That's easy enough to scope down. We could fit that within our sprint, right? Um, okay, well, now that we've done that and we figured this out, what if we fix it on our about page, you know? Or we notice our homepage has, you know, some empty links. What if we committed to fixing that, right? Taking those small actionable changes um, building up some actual momentum with it um, and using that momentum that then to start selling just how much more usable the, the site is. And then you can start to recognize some bigger problems where it's like, well, actually, we couldn't quite fix the color contrast on our site because these colors uh, come from our design palette. The fundamental problem here is that our design palette isn't set up to meet this, these needs. So mm -hmm. Now maybe we need to get the designers involved. Maybe we can figure out a new color, right? And now suddenly we've got a systemic fix. Um, this is the value of a design system, by the way. Uh, for anyone who's unaware, a design system is a source of truth for um, UI decisions, basically. Uh, UI and UX decisions about our sites and applications across our brand. Um, and so it's a, a centralized single source of truth. So when we update a decision, it should hopefully propagate uh, throughout the rest of our applications and sites, right? And, you know, colors are a part of that design system. If we realize, hey, we just straight up are never going to get this blue to work with anything because color contrast is poor, 
we fix it at the design system level and suddenly lots of people can benefit. Um, so if you're dealing with that kind of uphill battle of people who feel like we can't prioritize this work, right? Find key blockers that are also low hanging fruit, right? Use that to build up some momentum. Figure out who the people are in your organization who would care. You're likely to find those amongst your developers. You're likely to find those amongst your designers. You're likely to find those amongst your product owners, right? People who believe that a product can and should be good and want to see it get better um, and, and sell them on small steps and use those small steps to build up momentum so that you can start making more systemic changes um, and, and you know, communicate what you're doing there, right? And along the while, just show people the real experience that you've created. For sure. Um, I'm going to, because uh, you mentioned uh, Marcy Sutton's Twitter thread, uh, as well as Shell Little's talk at uh, AxCon. I'm going to drop links to both of those in the show notes as well. Um, one thing you uh, you were just talking about, Ben, that really, I think, resonates. Well, there's two things, actually. The first is small steps. Um, one of the things, even just like any type of technology change, new thing, um, <clears throat> I see people do is try to do too much too fast, right? So whether it's learning JavaScript or trying to get into accessibility, um, if you try to tackle too much, you can get really frustrated and confused yeah. and just just give up, which sucks. So um, I really like this kind of thing you're advocating for, which is like start with some easy iterative changes and then kind of scale up as you get more proficient. Um, the other thing you mentioned though that I... Um, I think is really interesting is kind of showing people how this is not what you said, but this is me kind of <laughs> reinterpreting it, showing people how their stuff sucks as is and then how to fix it. Um, so one of the things I do in my vanilla JS Academy workshop, um, is, you know, uh, after each project, I, show kind of my um both my approach and then some of the common issues i see and one of the one of the projects i specifically kind of go through uh actually a few of them like not accounting for say screen reader users right and i'll open up voiceover on my computer and walk through like the app in a way that people commonly build it and show what that experience is like um and it's amazing how much more eye opening yeah. seeing that screen reader experiences is for folks versus just describing why something doesn't work in screen reader. Like hearing clunky announcements, like where you've got way too much information in a particular thing that gets announced every time a UI update happens or having not enough information so you don't know what buttons do on a page. Um, it just seems to hit so much more viscerally and really drive home the point in a way that just describing it does not. It, it takes it out of the realm of like the academic and theoretical into the realm of real user experience because, yeah. you know, it is people can intellectually understand that a screen yeah. reader user could use the site or could try to use the site, right? They might not know what that experience is like, but you could say like, okay, sure, I, I'm willing to bet that there are at least some users of this, right? Um, mm -hmm. But then you show them what that experience looks like and sounds like and feels like and you're like, holy cow. I would have, if, if, if I were doing this, I would have totally missed this, right? Or um, I, so one of the things I've done on my stream sometimes is like, I'll have 
people bring their personal sites, uh, like they can, they can suggest their sites and I'll do like an accessibility audit live. And I'm very, very keen to like walk through screen reader demos and stuff like that. And uh, there's a very popular pattern of having the like clickable card, you know, like where uh, maybe you've got like a grid of, of cards and all of those cards are completely clickable as links to things. And it's very understandable to wrap whatever element you're using as the card in an anchor tag. But, you know, what that means when you're navigating to that link with a screen reader is the uh, screen reader user will be told link and then the text contents of everything in that card in one go, including the alt text of any images you've got, any description stuff, and, um, you know, a voice control user to activate that link would have to say click and then that exact same string, including the alt text of the images and, and whatnot, right? Like, it's abysmal. And so I've shown this sometimes. And I've had like the people who submitted their site, uh, they'll like pop up in the chat and they'll be like, holy crap, this is terrible. What have I been doing? You know, and it's like you, you oftentimes just you need to see it to like understand it at a yeah. visceral level. Yeah, it um, it almost like triggers a um kind of an empathy reflex. I know I, I'm sometimes yeah. guilty of this myself where like you can know something. But until you experience it, it's like a lot harder to kind of have that um, that empathy reaction. Um, uh, and it's maybe just a, a either a personal failing or a failing of, of humans as a species. Um, and, and this, but, this uh, I think, also go, uh, goes to like it is so important to manually test your sites, right? Um, mm -hmm. Like until you've actually hopped into real screen readers, and I mean that plural, right? Screen readers plural to see how an experience is actually like how it actually feels on your page, uh, mm -hmm. you're just not going to know, right? There's, uh, it's it's so easy to talk about like, oh, the screen reader should, but because of, you know, differences in browsers, operating systems, devices, and screen readers and other assistive technologies, um, oftentimes the announcement isn't what you'd expect, right? Um, and that manual testing is is so, so important to get like that sense of like, how this actually is apart from how it theoretically could or should be. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I'm the, sorry, um, one, one more thought on that. Oh, like, you know, go, please, please. Yeah. Uh, I, I realized like I had a, had a thought and then I uh, forgot to actually say it, like get proficient in those assistive technologies, right? Become a power user of screen readers, become a power user of magnifiers. I, I admit I don't hop in a magnifier nearly as much as I should, right? Become a power user of assistive technologies because your users already are. Disabled people by necessity have to become power users of their assistive technologies. And so um, there are, you know, screen readers have navigation settings where you can hop from link to link to link or heading to heading to heading or, you know, button to button to button, form field to form field to form field, table to table to table, and so forth. Um, these settings exist, and they're often thought of as like advanced or power user settings, but they're perfectly valid and real ways to navigate a page. And so you should expect that people can and will use those on your page, right? Um, and so become a power user of assistive technology because your users already are. Right? These are valid ways to experience the page. You should understand what those experiences feel like. So um, one thing you kind of mentioned about um, people being, you know, people who use screen readers being power users of their tools. Um, I think one other aspect of this is there are also people who use those tools who are 
not power users of those tools, but mm -hmm. depend on them or um, you know, either for reasons that they're newly disabled, so they're still figuring the tools yeah. out, or they're not as technically proficient. Um, and, uh, you know, so that potentially creates some unique challenges too, right? Um, in terms of how they potentially like navigate and work with these tools. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's always a, a balance, right? It's like, yeah. uh, you know, again, user preference is just such an important thing. And um, even among screen reader users, right. There's huge debates about like how verbose something should be. Right. And uh, screen readers offer ways to provide more or less verbosity. Right. So you can't mm -hmm. even necessarily guarantee that even in the same screen reader on, you know, the same operating system that things will end out similarly to. So um <laughs> it's 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 tricky yeah. right um and the the best that we can do is um uh, try to understand that spectrum of experience um working especially where possible with people who actually do have that lived experience right like uh within uh disability history there's this mantra of nothing about us without us which is this notion that like um you shouldn't be building for disabled people but with disabled people Right. Um, because disabled people know their own needs best. And um, you can you can inadvertently cause a lot of harm by, uh, you know, building what you think disabled people need without having uh, like them involved in the process. Um, yeah, yeah, that's, that's a, a whole side conversation we could get into. Yeah. Yeah. This. um this feels almost a little bit like um like like white savior complex applied to yeah. disabled communities right where um uh talking outside the web like you'll see things like i've built a wheelchair that can climb stairs instead of just putting a fucking ramp on the building right yeah. uh, have have you heard the term for those kinds of things i love I have this. not okay this was by, oh, uh, what is her name? Liz Jackson. Uh, okay. She coined this term disability dongle, uh, which she defines as a solution created by uh, non-disabled people for problems we didn't know we had. Um, <laughs> and, and basically, this is this idea that, uh, um, yeah, you've created a product ostensibly for disabled people, but without having involved them in the process. So you don't know whether this is something they need, whether it's something they'd value, whether it's something that's even useful for them. The, uh, you know, those stair climbing wheelchairs are a great example because uh, every time one of those comes up, there's always a thread on Twitter of like real everyday wheelchair users who are like, holy shit, I would never get into, I don't know if I can say that on this podcast, but you um, can. There's, there's... Okay. Noted. Um, <laughs> like I, I would never get into that because uh, this, uh, this wheelchair, the seat would have me at a precarious angle. I would fall out of the chair if I did this or um, noting that like wheelchairs in general, part of the reason that they're so expensive is because in many cases they have to be custom made for the specific body that they're being built for. Otherwise that person could build up uh, injuries from sitting in the chair too long, or they could build up skin conditions from sitting in the chair too long, right? Like yeah. uh, wheelchairs that are not custom built for people, uh, you know, can actively injure them, right? And and so this stair climbing wheelchair is built for an idea of what someone might be, 
but is really more inspired by like hospital wheelchairs that are not meant for long-term use. And they would put people at precarious angles. And also they're incredibly expensive. And also they're way too fragile. And also they work only on specific stairs that have rails and, 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 and suddenly, oh, and also they're prohibitively expensive, right? And so no one in the real world is going to be able to use this. Um, and a bit of user focus groups beyond, you know, a handful of friends that are going to validate what their friends are testing and building, right? A handful of user focus groups would have surfaced many of these things, right? Um, and and clearly never did. There's also, you know, this that, that white savior incentive also shows up with like the news and media attention that comes like mm -hmm. oftentimes these disability jungles are vanity projects designed to increase funding for a design department, right? They don't care about putting it into the wild. Like if you follow up a year later, those chairs don't exist in the wild. Those sign language gloves don't exist in the wild, you know, uh, just because yeah. that's not really what they were for. They were vanity projects that, you know, seemed great. Like, oh, we could treat disability as a charity cause and not ever actually determine whether this would be good or useful or, you know, valuable for the world. Yeah. Sorry, I don't know that uh, you were expecting a dissection of media and design <laughs> in today's uh, <laughs> podcast, but that's what you got. Um, no, I appreciate it, Ben. Um, uh, if you're interested in learning more uh, about disability mm -hmm. dongles, I I mean, you, you can Google it. I would specifically recommend the works of Liz Jackson, who coined the term, as well as Alex Haygard, um, who is an academic that uh, is they've been heavily involved in, in kind of describing um, and documenting and reporting on um, disability dongles in the world. So those are the two people I would especially look to, to like learn more about this. Awesome. Yeah. And I found a talk from Liz on that. So I'm going to, I'm going to link to that in the show notes as well. Um, awesome. Well, Ben, thank you so very, very much for, um, on the show to chat with me. I really appreciate it. If uh, folks want to learn more about you and kind of your work and, and all that, what's um what's the best place for them to go? All right. Well, uh, I blog at benmyers.dev. Uh, that tends to be my little uh, homepage, I suppose. I stream twitch.tv slash someanticsdev. That's S-O-M-E-A-N-T-I-C-S-D-E-V. Um, uh, because I am a pun-driven developer. Uh, I came, true story. I came up with the name Some Antics, and I was like, I have to do something with this. And that's where the show came from. It was not the other way around. Um, I had the great that's name, great. and I'm like, I have, I, I can't let this go to waste. Um, if, if you're still of the Twitter persuasion, um, I can be found on Twitter at Ben D Myers. If you prefer uh, Mastodon, I'm at Ben on the a11y.info instance. Um, those are some good places to reach out. Um, yeah, those that's probably where best to find me. Um, I'm also very active in um, two uh, online communities of practice on Discord, uh, the LunchDev uh, Discord server, which you can get to at discord.gg slash lunchdev, um, and uh, a particularly welcoming home for the two of us, Chris, uh, the Front End Horse community, which you can get to at frontend.horse slash chat um if you'd like to uh 
participate in those communities, we'd love to have you.